Welcome back to uh, Presidential Profiles. This is Philip. And this is Robert. All right. And we're on part three of Ulysses Grant. We just finished the battle in Chattanooga. And t today we're going to be covering finishing up the Civil War, the campaign against Lee. And then we'll move on into his presidency. So why don't you just pick up pick up where you left off? I'd like to make a short remark before I start. Uh, we're in New York City. And this is a magnificent city. And uh, to a large part, New York is a great city because our country stayed united. And the, the uh, parts of the Civil War we're going to be talking about now are essentially the parts in which the uh, Northern armies uh, defeated the Southern armies and assured that the United States would not be uh, split into two separate and hostile countries. So uh, this was a critical, critical period in our national development. And Grant, uh, along with Lincoln, Sherman, and a few others were the, the main architects of, uh, of, this, uh, of the, the winning strategy in the Civil War. All right, so finish up the Civil War. Tell us about his campaign against Lee, how the Civil War ended, and what was, and when the Civil War ended, Lincoln's death, and what was Grant's profile like on the on the national stage? Was he a hero? What was his profile like? How was it compared to other generals? What, 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 what was basically wrap up the Civil War for us and tell us Grant's position as it ends? All right, that's that's a good outline uh, disguised as a question. So uh, as as Chatt as Chattanooga fell. Grant was seen as a highly successful general on the Western Front. Uh, the secession essentially had been crushed, uh, with the exception of, of Mobile. The major uh, Gulf seaports had been taken. Uh, the rule or the government, the federal uh, government, had been reestablished in the Mid South. Um, hundreds or hundred, probably hundreds of thousands of slaves were flocking to the Union armies as they advanced into the South. Um, they clearly, clearly rejected the idea of continued servitude um, due to the Emancipation Proclamation. They were, they were free men and so the uh, northern forces were not required to uh, compensate the uh, southern slave owners for manumission uh, and Grant uh, was paying in gold for the supplies, livestock, uh, firewood, building materials, uh, cloth, anything that his men took as they moved through the country they were paying in gold. Grant established right then that he was a uh, hard money advocate, you know, paying in gold instead of in, in greenbacks, paper money. Um, Grant avidly supported the administration policy on the manumission or the freeing of the slaves. Uh, Grant used the, uh, the labor of the slaves uh, extensively in moving logistical materials, in caring for the livestock, in maintaining the campsites and erecting fortifications. 
And Grant advocated the use of, of what they then called Negro troops or colored troops, you know, we would now say African Americans, uh, as, as combat soldiers. So this, this was a, a, a big split with American uh, policy up to that point. And uh, it showed Grant, in my opinion, of, of, of having very modern, very uh, progressive views on civil administration in the military. So we see a man who is a, a, a really highly gifted civil administrator, a tremendous strategist, uh, changing the uh, northern strategy from the Anaconda strategy that General Scott had advocated of, of squeezing the South, basically separating them and then starving them to death, to the strategy that Grant took of taking the offensive, of splitting up the South, of destroying their ability to wage war, and of crushing the uh, rebel armies <coughs> through uh, attrition in combat. So uh, Grant had uh, gained tremendous stature among the, the, the generals in the army. Lincoln also liked Grant because Grant hadn't shown a shred of political ambition. So Lincoln felt that Grant was a dependable military leader who would support the administration, who would not be threatening his position as the chief executive. Did they know each other? Uh, no. They uh, hadn't met. Um, Grant's uh, telegrams, his official communications were extremely terse. Uh, he would he would uh, give a message to Rollins, you know, say, you know, I want to do this, I want to do that. Rollins would then write it in, in very precise language, you know, based on uh, military uh, forms. So, so Lincoln really did not have much of a picture of Grant. Uh, at, 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 uh, and they never met. They had Lincoln they had, died and they never met. Well, they, they met in Washington when Grant came east to take over the, the Union armies. But uh, uh, Shiloh... What year was that? 63. Uh, uh, at Shiloh, Grant was accused of being drunk on the first day, and uh, Lincoln sent a reporter from the New York Times to be an embedded reporter with Grant's army, but basically he was there to see if Grant was uh, resuming his drunken habits. So Lincoln really didn't have a good idea about Grant and you know, was, was sending people essentially to spy on him and see what his personal habits were like. Of course, Washburn was in Washington constantly telling Lincoln. Washburn and Lincoln did know each other. They had a, a very lengthy political association. Lincoln trusted Washburn, and Washburn kept pushing Grant. Um, okay, so that, that brought up Grant's profiling. There's, there's the remark that is attributed to Lincoln that uh, when, Link, when Grant was accused of being drunk at Shiloh, Grant says, well, find out what brand of uh, whiskey <laughs> General Grant drinks, send him a case. <laughs> I need this man, he fights. <laughs> Lincoln later uh, saw the remark in Prince, and I didn't really say that, but I wish I had. <laughs> okay. Now, um, he goes back east, you're saying this is after Chattanooga in 63 to get the... So, so uh, Grant was called back after General Meade who commanded the Union forces at Gettysburg failed to actively pursue the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's army. Um, 
Gettysburg was an extremely confused battle. Uh, there's a lot of controversy to this day about the disposition of the soldiers, about the strategies. I mean, Lee is often criticized for being overly aggressive at Gettysburg. You know, people say he should have withdrawn, uh, not uh, not committed Lee, uh, um, not committed Longstreet's corps to an offensive, which destroyed Pickett's division. You know, the famous Pickett's charge. Um, a lot of people see Lee as the person who basically destroyed the Confederacy's viability as a military power on that one day. Meade thought the uh, Army of Northern Virginia had about three times the strength that they actually had. He can be forgiven that because they used uh, significant numbers of African-American slaves for labor as Teamsters, other ancillary positions. So. Uh, the number of effectives, the number of men they actually could throw into combat was a higher ratio than it was for the northern forces. So, um, you know, if the generals are looking at the men massed against them, they probably thought, well, there's a lot more behind them if they're extrapolating based on the way their forces were, uh, were arrayed. So, uh, in any case, Lincoln felt that Meade was too timid and he brought Brant, Brant, he brought Grant back from the West to take over the entire command of the U.S. Army forces. Where's, where's Sherman and, and Jackson? So Sherman was uh, around Chattanooga. Which Who? is where? Jackson. Yeah. Jackson was dead. Oh, he died. Jackson got what killed year? at Chancellorsville. In what year was that? 62. And he had been the leading general up until that time? Lee. Um, Jackson? Jackson? Jackson was a division commander. Oh, okay. So who who tell about who was leadership? Just pretty much. So so Lee was was uh, commanding the armies in the north. Uh, a general named Johnston was still commanding the army in the south on the secessionist side. Um, Sherman basically commanded the uh, western army, which was the combined forces of the Cumberland and uh, another river name. Uh, so those armies, those two western armies were combined into the western army. A general named Banks, who was a former senator from Massachusetts, uh, the most, probably most successful political general of the war in terms of his advancement and had formerly been the military governor of New Orleans, was in charge of another force which was to attack the Carolinas, uh, close off the Carolina ports, and come at Richmond from the southeast. So the strategy now, as Grant took over, was to press against the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's command, press out of Washington towards Virginia. Uh, the Army of the Potomac would uh, continually shift to its right flank, trying to outflank Lee, get around to Lee's left side, so that he would have Lee blocked between uh, the ocean and Richmond, okay. so the Army of the Potomac could attack Richmond. Yeah. Um, the <coughs> Western Army was marching from eastern Tennessee, Chattanooga, into northern Georgia mm -hmm. to attack Atlanta, and then they were going to come back up the uh, through the, the, the southern Piedmont and eviscerate southern industry and agriculture, and Banks was going to land in northeastern North Carolina and push through uh, 
the south side and the farmland in Virginia and attack Richmond from the south. All right. Now, you said, and I just wanted to clarify, you said that Lee was the head of the Northern Army, but you meant the, the Army of Northern Virginia. Army of Northern Virginia. And Which is a Confederate, uh, Confederate not, Right, not to be confused with the Union Army. And the Union Army East, before Meade was the, the commanding officer, who was the commanding officer? Well, Meade continued uh, in command of the Army of the Potomac. Before Meade? Oh, uh, let me think, McClellan. Okay, and what happened to him? Well, there were, there were seven commanders. Oh, okay. So there was a series of commanders. Each of them was defeated in different battles by General Lee. Oh, oh, Lee was that good? Yeah. Okay. All right, so now he goes into campaign against Lee, Grant does, and uh, this is once he takes over for Meade, and what happens there? So we're uh, the spring campaign of 1864. Uh, Army of the Potomac moved out of Washington. Uh, at that time, Washington was like a huge fortress. Mm-hmm. And the Army of the Potomac was the biggest northern command. So they moved against Lee. Um, there, was, there was a lot of um, hemming and hawing about the specific way they were going to move against Lee. Um, they dis- decided against a seaborne assault, moving the Army of the Potomac down the uh, Chesapeake Bay and attacking through the peninsula because McClellan had tried that and it had failed and they felt that by now uh, moving the Army of the Potomac by sea like that with uh, Lee's army positioned uh, on the Rapidan River and uh, another Confederate, big Confederate force in the Shenandoah Valley they felt that Washington would be too exposed while the Army of the Potomac was at sea. Mm-hmm. Um, going the most direct route, uh, they felt Lee had that sufficiently blocked off. Uh, moving down the uh, Shenandoah Valley, uh, Shenandoah Valley slants toward the west. So even though the, the northern entrance is close to Washington, as you proceed down the Shenandoah Valley, you go further west. So they thought, well, if we attack Richmond from that way, by the time we get out of the mountains, we're farther away. And again, Washington is exposed to uh, attack by Lee's army in central Virginia, north central Virginia. So Grant determined that they would march through the wilderness, basically uh, imitating the German attack through the Ardennes against the French. The French had the normal routes of approach into France well fortified. The Confederates had the normal routes of of approach toward Richmond well fortified. So like the Germans attacking the Ardennes, Grant decided to attack the Confederacy through the more lightly fortified wilderness area. And this is an area of scrubby forest, bad soils, uh, just a real tangled mess. So the Army of the Potomac basically had to cut their way through. Of course, back then they didn't have uh, GPS or anything like that. Um, they hadn't done a, a geological study or a geographical study, so the maps were all bad. They didn't know where the roads were, they didn't know where the trails were. Uh, so once the uh, Army of the Potomac plunged into the wilderness, they were basically traveling blind and they essentially had to construct all the bridges and roadways as they went. Does he eventually confront Lee? So 
the Army of the Potomac, as it as it moved into the wilderness, uh, became a column instead of a line. Mm -hmm. Now, if we think of 19th century warfare, when they when the armies attacked each other, they were in line, which means they were spread out uh, shoulder to shoulder across the battlefield. Mm -hmm. With you know, the general might be in the center, you might be on one of the flanks, mm -hmm. but you know, they were they were spread out shoulder to shoulder mm -hmm. facing the enemy. A column would be like them marching on a road, mm -hmm. you know, front to back. So as they went into the wilderness, the Army of the Potomac found itself in column formation. Mm -hmm. Lee essentially deployed his army in a U formation mm -hmm. around the front of the column. So the Northern Army had a very narrow front. The Southern Army had a very wide front. Mm -hmm. So the Southern Army had uh, huge firepower advantages throughout the, the campaigns. They also had the advantage that they consistently beat Grant's army from position to position. As Grant continued to wheel to his right to try and get around Lee's army, Lee's army would strike him and retreat. And because they were so much less encumbered by equipment, and because <coughs> they had slaves moving their logistics, the Confederate Army actually could move faster mm -hmm. than the Army of, of the Potomac, which had to protect its supply trains and its baggage trains and all like that. So there were a series of sharp engagements through the wilderness and this through, is northern through the Virginia. different towns. Yeah, through through northern and central Virginia. Uh, you know, just, just battle after battle, Orange County, uh, Cold Harbor, you know, just the, 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 the names. And each battle uh, resulted in massive casualties, you know, because again, you know, there's, there's, when they were in the wilderness, they were shooting at each other, the woods were catching on fire, yeah. you know. Now, so, did it look like Grant would lose? Um, Grant was successful in pushing his way around Lee's army. Uh, Grant consistently. Uh, uh, inflicted a higher proportion of casualties on Lee's army than the casualties that his army was taking, but the aggregate number of casualties on the Union side was uh, significantly higher. You know, the Southerners might lose 3,000 men, the Northerners would lose 5,000. So the Southern army would be treated by 5%, the Northern Army would be treated by 2.5%. Okay, because he had a bigger force. So, yes. Okay. And um, so he eventually won just through war of attrition. So they, they, kept, they kept wheeling around to Lee's right. Lee had to keep retreating to his left. And they eventually pushed Lee back to where he had to go into, uh, into trenches around Richmond and Danville. Mm -hmm. in central Virginia. Richmond being the Confederate secessionist capital, mm -hmm. Danville being an important rail junction mm -hmm. that they needed to keep Richmond su supplied. Uh, during this period... Was Lee worried at this point? Well, Lee was worried, for sure. Uh, he sent uh, a force through the, wind, through the uh, Shenandoah Valley to attack Washington. They were successful in drawing a whole core of Grant's army back to Washington to protect Washington against that threat. Uh, it was beaten off. Lincoln was nearly shot 
in one of the one of the engagements. How uh, close did they get to the White House? They were at, uh, I believe, Bladensburg, Maryland. I mean, the, the Confederate Army was visible from the ramparts of the fortifications around Washington. Mm-hmm. What are ramparts again? So, uh, you know, just, just big earthworks. Okay. You know, big mounds of, of dirt. Okay. And uh, Lee was curious and or I'm sorry, Lincoln was curious. He wanted to see the co- the Confederates, mm-hmm. and so he went up on one of the on one of those big mounds and was looking over. And of course, he had his big stovepipe hat, and his right. black jacket, and Oliver Weldon Holmes said, "Get down, you fucking fool! They're gonna shoot you if you don't get down." And uh, so Lincoln had to sc- scamper back down, and Confederates did fire a few shots at him. So Lincoln actually came under fire, and. You know, they, they, they were that close. And okay. It was that personal. All right. And so, um, so what's his name? Uh, Lee is back in, um, he's back in Richmond now, and he's holing up there. So and Grant's coming down on it. So, so by, by the fall of 1864, uh, Grant had advanced to Richmond. Uh, banks with a whole other... Uh, Union Army got uh, trapped in uh, the south side, couldn't move his men, got trapped on the James River, and Sherman, of course, was advancing towards Atlanta. Uh, Sherman fought several battles, Battle of Stone Mountain being one of them against Johnston's army, continued his inexorable advance on uh, Atlanta. But with Banks being trapped on the James River, with the enormous casualties, I mean, uh, the New York Times at that time had 11 columns of print per page, and basically used an eight font uh, typeset. Mm-hmm. And with 11 columns per page and eight font, eight font typeset, the casualty lists were running 16 and 17 pages. Wow. So there were there were <coughs> thousands upon thousands of Union families getting the letters that you know Junior has been killed or wounded in in, in battle in Virginia. So uh, the chances of Lincoln's re-election in that summer looked very poor. Sixty-four. Sixty-four. Lincoln actually wrote a letter uh, that he sealed, um, showed it to the cabinet. They sealed it. And it was instructions to McClellan, who was running against him, on how to uh, dissolve the Union, uh, the things that they had to maintain at all costs in their negotiations with the, the Confederate uh, peace commissioners when, when they decided to end the war in what would have been a Union defeat. Because uh, McClellan's uh, campaign was to negotiate an immediate peace with the Confederates to let, to let them go. Wow. And uh, how how the country split? How um, so? I mean, he did a he, Lincoln wrote a sealed envelope. How well, if Lincoln at that time was looking at his prospects of winning the war outright versus having to do some kind of compromise defeat? What what are what what are the odds he's looking at either one? Lincoln Lincoln never never ever considered. Uh, allowing the secession to advance. Okay. I mean, Lincoln was 100% in favor of maintaining the Union. 
um, he would have had to have been removed from office or killed uh, for the secession to succeed. But if, if McClellan beat him, then he he would have to obviously had had McClellan draw up papers to give him instructions on how it would actually be done. Well, like McClellan, a briefing. McClellan would have been the president. He right. could have done whatever he wanted. But Lincoln was giving advice. But Lincoln thought, you know, there's certain things that uh, have to be maintained. And he didn't want... McClellan hated Lincoln. I mean, when McClellan was uh, general-in-chief, he wrote all sorts of horrible things about Lincoln. He called him the original guerrilla. He snubbed him. I mean, there was one point uh, where McClellan hadn't communicated with the War Department, the Secretary of War, which back then was the Secretary of the Army. You know, back then they were honest. And instead of calling it the uh, Department of Defense, they called it the Department of War. He hadn't communicated with the uh, Secretary of War or with the President for several weeks. Uh, Lincoln took the Attorney General and the uh, Secretary of War went to McClellan's house to have a conference with him about the, the, the conduct of the war and the progress of training the Army. Uh, McClellan's wife admitted them. McClellan came down from his study in his uh, smoking jacket saw the president, the secretary of war, the attorney general said, gentlemen, I'm tired, we'll have this another time, went back upstairs to bed. Wow. So that was when, that was how McClellan treated his commander in chief wow. as a military officer. So, so Lincoln felt that there was no possibility that he was gonna have a conference with McClellan and give many advice, so he, he sealed this you know, the cabinet signed it so they knew it wasn't partisan or Lincoln trying to impose something on McClellan and then they sealed it up and put it in the desk where he would find it when he took office. Alright, so just explain how does it finally end and then what what's the end, like what what's the timing of Lincoln's death and the takeover of Johnson? So, so essentially uh, Sherman captured uh, Atlanta that changed the psychology in the North. Lincoln won a resounding re-election victory. Um, in Sherman captures Atlanta in what month? October. Right before the election. The October Good surprise. Time. All right. So, uh, and in December he captured Savannah. And <coughs> the uh, campaign against Virginia, or I'm sorry, the campaign against Richmond settled into trench warfare mm -hmm. with Richmond under siege the way uh, Vicksburg had been. Yeah, and this is a very nasty campaign. It went on until April of 1865. I mean, uh, there's a, a number of novels and, and books about it. Very, very nasty campaign. A lot of, a lot of camp sickness. Um, on New Year's Eve, and this, this is kind of typical of Grant, on New Year's Eve, Grant decided to uh, celebrate New Year's Eve with a hundred gun salute to Richmond. And of course the guns were loaded. <laughs> so a hundred cannon fired uh, onto Richmond to celebrate New Year's <laughs> Eve. You know, and and uh, you know, that, that kind of was uh, Grant's uh, signature type move. Yeah, that's you know? good, that's funny. So then eventually um, Lee surrenders? So um, Lee uh, broke out. Uh, they captured Danville, they crushed uh, the, the possibility of resistance, uh, Sheridan crushed the southern forces in the Winchester, uh, or 
at Winchester in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, which basically took the main source of supplies, foodstuffs, that Lee depended on away from him. Um, Sherman was moving up from South Carolina. They, they burned uh, they burned Columbia and they were extremely vindictive since the South Carolinians in their view had started the Civil War. Um, Banks finally broke out of his uh, his position on the James River. So uh, Lee evacuated Richmond and started moving west. Um, Lincoln got to visit Richmond. He was greeted by primarily the black population as a savior, you know, and this is a big part of the Lincoln uh, stature among African Americans that lasted for generations. Um, Grant began a pursuit of Lee's army and Lee's army essentially at this point was falling apart. Men were deserting in droves, they had no food, they had no ammunition. Uh, Grant was concerned lest the Army of Northern Virginia uh, move into the mountains and commence a guerrilla war. So he offered Lee potential surrender. Lee realized his men were starving to death, uh, wasn't really interested in a guerrilla campaign. He really did not see that as honorable, so he surrendered the army. Uh, there's the famous meeting at Appomattox Courthouse, uh, at the, actually at the McLean residence at the junction in the road called the Appomattox Courthouse. Mm -hmm. um, and in the surrender, Lee offered Grant his sword. Lee arrived resplendent in a dress uniform. Grant showed up like basically dressed in battle gear, mud splattered all over him. Uh, Lee did not view it as an insult, which it wasn't. You know, Grant was just a working general and that was, you know, the way he dressed. And uh, Lee offered the sword, Grant refused it. Uh, Grant wrote very liberal terms for parole uh, of the common soldiers. He let the officers keep their sidearms. Why, why would Grant refuse the sword? Out of gallantry. Oh, okay. Just, you know, you've been a gallant foe, I'm mm -hmm. not going to take your sword. Mm -hmm. um, he was, Grant was informed by Lee, or by Lee's adjutant, that uh, most of the officers owned their horses and that some of the artillerymen and so on owned the, owned the draft animals, so Grant said if the man owns the horse he can take it, you know, we're not going to take their livestock away from them, and uh, Lee was very grateful for that. We're in April, so the planting season is imminent, so he said, you know, the, this, this animals will be very useful when the men get back to their farms and start the spring planting. So. Uh, there was a reconciliatory uh, tone. tone. And Grant also told the Army of the Potomac, who had been engaged in bitter combat with the Army of the Northern Virginia for four years, who had been defeated by them time and again, until this moment of uh, supreme triumph when they crushed the Army of Northern Virginia. He said, we're not going to play any music, there's going to be no cheering, no jeering, you know, when you're going to salute them, you're going to treat them with all respect, with all honor, We're, you know, so in other words, you know, 
reconciliation. Did respect? Did Lee and Grant admire one another, or did they have a kind of rivalry? Did did Grant see Lee as some kind of moral blackguard because of his his secession? Or did he respect what he had been able to do as a general? What was that relationship? So, um, Grant had enormous respect for the Southern plantocracy. Mm -hmm. You know, he had tried to make a living on a plantation, found out he couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, his father-in-law, who he apparently had a high degree of respect for, was a Southern plantation owner. Lee was at the apex of that southern plantation class, born into a rich family with a rich military tradition. Previously, uh, they had owned, before this war, they had owned Arlington Cemetery. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful yeah. land. Yeah. Uh, Lee had been the superintendent of West Point. He graduated first or second in his class. He was always immaculate. He was one of the most trusted officers, one of the few officers who had big commands, prestigious commands in the peacetime army between the Mexican War and the uh, Civil War. So Grant had to have had almost uh, reverence, certainly awe, towards Lee. And Lee was a uh, physically imposing man. He's six oh, he feet was. tall, very handsome, trim, you know, very, you know, very impressive to me and very, very strong military bearing, which mattered a lot back then. Military bearing, you mean like athletic? Uh, you know, standing up straight, okay. you know. Posture and stuff. Uh, saluting, you know. <coughs> and and um, did Grant have a physical presence as well? So Grant really didn't have a physical presence. He's about 5'9". He was, nine. He was about 5'9". Uh, very slim, I mean, weighed probably big 140 pounds. And uh, there wasn't anything about Grant that, that Lee would have looked at and said, you know, this well, is a remarkable man. You know, Lee's corps commanders were as tough as Grant. His regimental commanders were tough. His company commanders were tough. Uh, you know, you're talking about a man who is raised uh, among slave drivers. They're tough. You know, you take well, what about or yeah, but slaves We're not talking about brutes. We're talking about, I mean, Grant was tough, but also intelligent, assertive. I mean, you're a slave driver. It doesn't mean you can, you know how to properly the, bring an army through the bush. The uh, southern interpretation of Grant was that he basically was a brute who just, you know, had such a mass of men that they just massed them against the Southerners and just kept coming. Really? No matter how many men but, he lost. But what would they say if you... He always brought up more. Yeah, well, he did have a lot of men. But what would you say... What would they say if you said to them, well, Lee defeated every other general he went up against, but against Grant, he couldn't defeat him? They would just say that? Oh, well, he well, had so many that's, men. That's always, that's always the uh, argument you make for saying that Grant was a, a superior general. Basically, the Southerners would say no. You know, Grant just outmuscled us. You know, if he could lose three men for every one we could, and he inflicted two casualties on us for every three that he took, mm -hmm. he just outmuscled us. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
All right, I mean, that's a decent, I mean, in a way, it's a decent argument. So then the war ends, right? No, oh, does Link, the war ends and then Lincoln dies right afterwards? Yes. Okay, so just give me a minute on that, how that all So, um, Lincoln was assassinated on the 14th of April, uh, Good Friday. So there was... I'm sorry, well, Lee's surrender is, is when, March? Or no, April, April, like April 10th, April 9th, somewhere in there. And tensions are still obviously running high. Emotions. Yes. Uh, Booth and his little cabal are determined, you know, to assassinate the northern leaders and uh, revitalize the secession. Really? Yeah. So they're not ready to surrender? Yeah. And Booth is from Baltimore? Uh, probably. Okay. But extraordinarily racist. Okay. And uh, <coughs> I think that more than anything was the motivation for his uh, animosity towards Lincoln and towards the Republican government. Is, is Lincoln reveling right now in the fact that they won? What's his emotional state? Well, Lincoln was pretty happy, but um, Seward, who was his main friend and his main ally, Secretary of State, had been badly in injured in a carriage accident. You know. Uh, they were, you know, racing around Washington, and they hit a beer truck or something. Uh, and he was thrown out of the uh, carriage and got trampled, and maybe even some of the wagon wheels rolled over him. So he broke both his legs, broke his hip, broke his arms, broke his collarbone, broke his jaw. So he was he was in bed in traction and being fed soup basically by his son and his wife to keep him going um stanton secretary of war uh lincoln's other big supporter really didn't they didn't really didn't like each other and so they weren't on on very good terms um some of the congressmen who lincoln liked were engaged with whatever lincoln wanted the Grants to go to the theater with them, but the Mrs. Mrs. Grant and Mrs. Lincoln just really, really had a hard time together. Oh, really? Why? Because Miss Lincoln? <laughs> well, Mrs. So Lincoln was, you know, the uh, uh, Nicolay and Hay, Lincoln's personal secretaries, referred to Mrs. Lincoln as the Hellcat. Right. She's hard to so, deal with. Yeah. All right. So Lincoln gets assassinated. It's a shock to everyone. Yeah, yeah, uh, but you know he was alone. I mean, like they, they basically the Lincolns wanted company, and they wanted to have a social evening, probably at the White House, and singing, you know, and piano playing. Something and, to relax the mind after right. the Right, but but nobody was willing to go, so they and ended up going to the theater. So so that might have been avoided if Grant had decided to go to dinner with Lincoln. Yeah, if Mrs. Lincoln and Mrs. Grant had been able to get along together, the whole thing might have been avoided. And Booth, that's interesting. And Booth. New, he's an actor, so was he planning this, or he just sees Lincoln and it's a spontaneous... Uh, he was planning it, but uh, he didn't know, you know, I mean, Lincoln didn't publish the schedule, White House schedule, uh, you know, Lincoln just kind of showed up, and I'm not sure if, if Booth was in the theater, or if he got it by the scuttlebutt, you know, the president's going to come to this uh, performance, but in any case, he, he had an ear to the ground close enough that he could respond 
when he found out the president was attending. This. So maybe day of. But, well, I also think, you know, that Good Friday, they kind of, that had something to do with their plans because Seward was also attacked. Oh, that's why Seward got into the um, accident? No, he had the accident. He was in bed, and one of, uh, one of Booth's co-conspirators came into his sick chamber and stabbed him. Killed him? No. Stabbed him like six times. I mean, here's poor Seward in traction, and they didn't have effective analgesics back then, so he's in constant pain. Yeah. And, you know, you had a broken jar, so you know how much that hurts. Right. And, uh, and this guy, this brute, comes in and starts stabbing him in the chest with a knife, you know, a big old butcher knife. You know, and his, his son actually had to kind of beat the guy off until other help arrived. Really? You know, yeah. How old was his son, do you know? He was, he was growing up. He's like, I think, in his mid-20s. Okay. All right. So um, Lincoln dies, and Johnson has to take over, right? Right. The war is done, though. Uh, um, Sherman fought another battle in North Carolina. But yeah, essentially. And I think there was, there was some sporadic fighting in Texas and few other few other odds and ends so does Grant go immediately into politics so so Grant was the general-in-chief of the army and is he the preeminent military <laughs> figure on the Union side at this point or is it Sherman no Grant okay and uh, they <coughs> had the the demobilization they had uh, the, the the Confederacy uh, the secessionist states were divided into military districts. I think Virginia continued as a state, and then the other the other uh, secessionist states were uh, subdivided into, thinking six military districts. So there were different generals, different uh, prominent generals assigned to each of the military districts as a military governor, and. Grant had to figure out how to demobilize the army, <coughs> and at the same time staff up for the uh, the civil administration. Yeah, in the former secessionist states, and uh, you know back then staff support was very low. So you know even though he was the uh, general in chief, when uh, Winfield Scott. Who had been the general in chief before the Civil War? He was he was considered uh, a clerk in epaulets because of the extreme amount of administrative work that fell to him. So Grant was pretty busy. So what what Johnson takes over as president? He's a terrible president. No? So Johnson had been a senator a I should say. and a former governor of Tennessee. Okay. And he was the only uh, Southern politician <coughs> of that prominence who retained loyalty to the Union. Oh, okay. And so important in that regard. Because he was in Washington as, as the senator, he wasn't in Tennessee, so he continued in Washington right. uh, during the course of the Civil War. Now, Lincoln's... Was he, president. was he considered a traitor by the by the South? Oh, of course. Okay. Uh, Lincoln's first vice president was a man named Hannibal Hamlin, who I think is a very interesting character. Uh, 
he was one of the founders of the Republican Party, uh, a very middle-class type New England uh, merchant, you know, lawyer, you know, had a uh, background similar to Lincoln's, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Maine back then was kind of a frontier area. Uh, so there are a lot of similarities with, with Lincoln and Hamlin. They probably got along well together. Um, Hamlin, like I said, was a, a very loyal Republican. He was well, uh, well liked in their, in their party. Uh, you know, he seemed to be able, but in, uh, as a political ploy, you, uh, Lincoln wanted to run on a bipartisan ticket. So he took Johnson, a Democrat, to replace Hamlin as the vice president. And they even changed the name. They stopped running as Republicans. Now they're running as the Union Party. So uh, at a time when the parties were very regionalized, when there were very few Democrats in the Congress, very few Democratic governors, Johnson took over as a Democratic governor. And right after the election of 1864, where the Democrats were vilified as copperheads, people who supported secession. So Johnson was uh, basically uh, suspected by both sides. And he was uh, essentially illiterate. He was an autodidact, mm -hmm. which means he never went to school, mm -hmm. but taught himself everything. And we don't know if he could read or not. I mean, it's the if he could read, his wife taught him to read as an adult. Mm -hmm. So he was very, very sensitive about people's perception of his intellect, his literacy, his common sense, everything like that. And he was a tailor. And, you know, back then all clothes were basically hand-stitched. And tailors were viewed as, as very menial type occupation. Mm. So he had a lot of, uh, a lot of uncompensated resentments. Mm. And, and how long does his, basically, what, what is his relationship to Grant and how does his presidency lead into Grant's entrance into politics? So, so, so Grant was a premier supporter of Lincoln administration policies. Um, and he had this patina of nonpartisanship because he had never run for office. He wasn't a lawyer. Uh, during peacetime, he was pretty much a zero. You know, unlike Stanton, for instance, the Secretary of War, who was a prominent lawyer before the Civil War and had a lot of enemies as well as very strong allies, Grant was kind of a non-entity. Yeah, he just sells so firewood. His, his whole eminence arose from his outstanding service during the Civil War and his patriotism. Mm -hmm. So uh, because Reconstruction was going on, uh, because uh, so many of the former Union soldiers, I mean, they were basically the core of the Republican Party. So, so Grant had huge uh, political prestige. Okay. And what was his relationship to Johnson, and what, what made him think that he would run for GOP? Um, so, so Grant probably was indifferent toward Johnson. He probably didn't know him very well. 
Um, you probably didn't have a very strong opinion about him either way. <coughs> um, obviously, or politically, either. in in any way. Okay. As as the general in chief, he expected the commander in chief to give him direction and viewed it as his duty to carry out the uh, the instructions of the commander in chief. But Johnson uh, was a racist. He was vehemently anti-black. He was, you know, all his compensatory insecurities uh, worked into his uh, ideals about white supremacy and the wisdom of the working man. And so, you know, he viewed Grant, you know, West Point grad, eminent general and everything. He had a great deal of trepidation and insecurity in dealing with Grant. He had a great deal of insecurity and trepidation in dealing with Stanton and the other, the other uh, cabinet members with the Congress. Um, he was a binge drinker. So, so um, Johnson's having a hard go of it, basically. He's not liked on either side. What, why does Grant decide he's going to go into politics? Well, um, Who convinces him? Because he had showed no so political ambition. Sheridan, I would say, was probably the uh, most seminal, most uh, in conductive figure towards Grant going into politics. Uh, Grant liked Sheridan. Sheridan was a dashing cavalry officer. This is Philip Sheridan, right? Philip Sheridan, whose statue stands in front of the Capitol. Uh, of New York State in Albany. Uh, he was a dashing uh, cavalry officer. He was extremely aggressive. He hated Southerners. I mean, during West Point, he got in a fight with a Southerner like every day. Uh, he had a fiery temper. He was extremely well organized. He knew how to conduct cavalry operations. He knew how to run an army. He knew how to supply an army. He was... Uh, Credited with one of the major victories, the victory over the Confederate forces at Jubal Early at um, Winchester and securing the Shenandoah Valley for the Union, which had been a, an ongoing problem through the whole was Civil he, War. All right, so was he? So he was uh, the uh, military commander in Texas and okay. Louisiana. Okay. And uh, all the Republicans in the South were black. So the civil administration of the secession estates, the governors, senators, a lot of the House, House of Representative members, a lot of the uh, assembly members, mayors, and so on, a large number of them were, were African American, mm -hmm. and the the Confederates just weren't going to stand for it, and they still had their arms, even though they had uh, parole. Again, for the federal government, they didn't have paroles for the state governments. Mm -hmm. And so the uh, redemptorist faction of the Democratic Party, white supremacists, uh, basically declared war against the civil governments formed by former slaves. Sheridan took a very militant position and was totally willing to use federal armed forces to support. This is during the Johnson administration. Yes. Reconstruction is yes. setting in. Yes. 
to support the African American elected officials in his military district. And Grant saw that another Johnson term would only increase would, the would, would only degrade the relations. And the, uh, the, the, the Democratic nominee was a, a, a Horace Greeley, a, a newspaper publisher. Oh, yeah, who, Horace Greeley, Tribune, right? Who had, yeah, the Tribune, who had been considered a liberal, but who, for whatever reason, was, was like completely horrified at the idea of Negro uh, equality. Well, Horace Greeley really seems like a peach. Um, I heard a story about how Horace Greeley used to have Karl Marx working for him. When Probably. He, and Karl Marx was on a $5 installment salary and was begging um, Horace Greeley for a raise. And Horace Greeley said, nah. And Marx wrote to Engels saying, oh, this is the last straw of petty bourgeoisie. Then he says, you know what? I'm not going to have my family living in poverty. He quits the newspaper job, goes back to Europe, and then writes the Communist Manifesto. And we eventually get the Cold War because Horace Greeley, the great capitalist, wouldn't give Marx a $2 raise. Yeah. Anyway, so... so and, 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 you know, Horace Greeley, I mean, that's I think that's really typical of the way Horace Greeley didn't really think long term. Right. A lot of his actions had repercussions that you know completely unforeseeable, right. but serious repercussions. Right. So, so, so Grant uh, was convinced by prominent Republicans. Uh, also, by now he's thinking, you know, he wants new challenges. Um, he was not financially secure. <coughs> he needed employment. Yeah. Um, he probably was thinking, I need a raise. And the president was still the top paid government official yeah and uh, a lot of wealthy people were giving them stuff like the use of houses yeah. and mansions yeah but uh, on a personal level Grant's kids were starting school he had tuition to pay so probably was like yeah you know I'm doing pretty good at this job but there's this better job there's an opening for it Let's see if I can get it. All right, so this is we're going to finish up this episode. We'll go into the next episode, which will be his nomination, the election, his presidency. We're going to touch on the scandals, and then we'll do the end of his life. Okay. All right, thanks again for listening to Presidential Profiles. Love you, audience.